Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. This week, our guest is Sultan Saud El Qasimi, the Emirati columnist and researcher and founder of the Barjil Art Foundation. Sultan is one of the most recognized and sought after thought leaders on social, political, and cultural affairs in the Arab Gulf region. And he'll be speaking with us today about the trends in contemporary art, the impact of political events on these trends in the Arab region, his online cultural majlis, and his many contributions to a flourishing art scene in the Gulf and the region, and his role in promoting the high impact of Arab artists on the international artistic and cultural scene. My conversation with Sultan El Qasimi after this short break. We decided to show 50-50, a gender-balanced exhibition of female and male artists and women, Andrew, across the ages, especially the 20th century, where there's no excuse for people not to showcase works by women artists. Women have always gotten the short end of the stick, to use an American phrase. Uh, and this is not just in the Arab world. This is even in America. The American museums are guilty of showing uh, more, much more works by male as though male artists are better, and it is inexcusable. And so what could we do about this? We could show works by female and works by male artists side by side and let the, let the audience decide. Art really shows you that when men take away their hand and their control, women can excel naturally. And they became the heads of the greatest art institutions in the region. Most of the art museums and galleries are either founded by women or, or run by women. Our Minister of Culture in the UAE is a woman. Welcome back. That was Sultan El Qasimi, founder of the Barjil Art Foundation and our guest today on On the Middle East. Now, as many of you know, I'm a political scientist by training and I spend my days at El Monitor working with our incredible team on the mostly political and economic news and trends shaping the Middle East. However, I don't believe you can begin to grasp these trends in the region without understanding what's happening with culture and in the arts. And that's why we make a point to cover culture and the arts at El Monitor as well. And in thinking about this and our guest and topic today, I wanted to share a brief personal formative experience for me that impacted my own understanding of the region and how I approach it. As a graduate student in the 1990s, I received a fellowship from the American Center for Oriental Research in Amman, Jordan, to conduct research there on the Jordan-Iraq political and economic relationship. Now, my dissertation would eventually be on Iraq, and back then it was difficult to work in Iraq because a U.S. passport was prohibited from being used to travel there. This was the time of Saddam Hussein. Now, while I would eventually make my way back to Iraq, I was having a good run in Jordan interviewing officials, business leaders, commentators, and academics about Jordan-Iraqi ties. 
And then a friend told me, that's all good, but the best way to understand Iraq while in Jordan was to spend time in art galleries. Two of the most prominent private art galleries in Amman at the time were run by Iraqis, and the galleries featured works by many Iraqi artists, painters, and sculptors. I thereafter spent countless hours at the Orfali and Kuba galleries, testing the patience of my new friends with my just okay Arabic, meeting many Iraqi artists who traveled to Jordan seeking exhibitions or to sell their works as Iraqi artists suffered immensely under both Saddam Hussein and U.S. and international sanctions on Iraq at the time. Now, I mention this only because as an American researcher studying Iraqi and Jordanian politics, these experiences were hugely impactful for me. That is meeting and talking with artists and the Iraqis and others who came together around art. I learned so much more as a student of Iraq, its politics and people by engaging with Iraqi art and Iraqi artists. And that brings us to our guest today, Sultan Al-Qasimi. He is the founder of the Barjil Art Foundation, an independent initiative established in 2010 to contribute to the intellectual development of the art scene in the Arab region by building a prominent and publicly accessible art collection in the United Arab Emirates. Sultan's social media commentary, as well as his columns at El Monitor and elsewhere, have been among the most read and most influential in the region since he started writing around the time of the Arab Spring back in 2011. He has held distinguished visiting faculty appointments at Boston College and at Georgetown, Yale, and New York universities. And further as way of introduction, I recall a wonderful dinner party hosted by Sultan at his place a few years ago, where after a fantastic meal and conversation among an eclectic group, Sultan gave us a tour of his incredible collection of contemporary art. I left his dinner uh, late to barely catch my flight out of Dubai that night back to Washington, and I admit my head was spinning from the collection and Sultan's descriptions and explanations of the impact and importance of the many works and hoping for even more time to allow myself more questions and more reflection on the many stunning pieces he showed us that night. Now, although Sultan and I keep in touch and we've spoken many times since then, I could not be more pleased to pick up that conversation about modern Arab art today with Sultan Al-Qasimi. Sultan, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you, Andrew. You wrote a piece last month discussing the influence of liberation movements and protests on Arab art in the mid-20th century, specifically how laborers and workers have been depicted. What are the trends you see in art since the Arab Spring demonstrations in 2011 through today, where we continue to see protests in Lebanon, Iraq, and elsewhere in the region? Well, uh, there, a lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed. Uh, so 
what has changed, I think, is are the means with which people are expressing themselves. We saw, of course, a proliferation of graffiti during the Arab Spring, for instance. Even though it was there before the Arab Spring, it really did spread much more during the Arab Spring. Now, we saw at the, in the uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq, for instance, a greater use of technologies such as mobile phone, graphic, and artists who make art on the go. And so a lot of the artworks were super fresh, were done in the midst of the protest. They get uploaded uh, and they go onto, onto Instagram and onto Snapchat and many other uh, platforms that I'm not familiar with. Uh, so the mediums have changed. However, the message of freedom, dignity, rights, bread, a lot of these have stayed similar even over the past few decades. I read an interview where you said your favorite decade for Arab art was the 1960s. Tell us what strikes you most about that period and how it compares to today. Well, the, Arab, the, the, the 1960s was a fascinating time, not only in the Arab world, but Africa, much of Asia. Uh, there was a lot of liberation movements. There was a lot of, um, a lot of political movements that had uh, come into the fore. Uh, you, had, uh, uh, you had independence for many states in the Arab world and in Africa. And all, this political, all these political movements, Andrew, had a, a great um, impact on the cultural scene. And so artists were demanding freedom. The, imagine this is when there was birth of national flags in many countries in the Arab world. But also, <clears throat> travel was becoming more and more accessible, for instance. It wasn't like the 1930s and 40s. By now, there were planes and airports all over the Arab world, and people were traveling easily. And so you had this cross-pollination of ideas. You had the advent of uh, the, te the television. The, the radio was spread everywhere. Uh, magazines and newspapers were being printed and sold in different parts of the Arab world. So there was this massive, massive cross-sharing of culture and influence across the Arab world. And this is, this is why it's my favorite uh, decade. And uh, of course, you had a lot of artists that we are still discovering, Andrew, even 50 years on. Um, of course, the 70s and 80s were also great, but I sort of have a, have a minor bias towards the 60s. And in terms of the trends, you talked about liberation movements and so forth. How do those trends compare to what the art we're seeing today from the protests compare? Is it a similar trend about freedom and self-expression or is, is there something else happening? Um, well, one thing I can tell you is, for instance, the Soviet influence in the 1950s, 60s, and the 70s is missing from today's artists, for instance. Uh, the Soviet Union hosted tens of thousands of artists from the so-called Global South, from Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, and even Latin America. And, uh, and so these artists would study at the Soviet Union and come, come back to their region, to the Arab world, with a lot of ideas and a lot of influences. And then they would go on and teach generations upon generations of artists. So this is one major difference between the 1960s and the, and the 2000s, for example. Um, there's also uh, uh, less of an interest in, in art and culture from many of the, tr the traditional sort of Arab capitals and republics that have for about two, three decades been occupied with conflict and internal wars. For instance, Iraq and Syria, both Ba'athist countries invested heavily in art in the 1960s and 70s. This is something we don't see so much of 
today, even though they have in Iraq reopened their national museum, we are missing a national art museum, for instance. Sultan, you anticipated one of my next questions. How is the experience of some Arab societies with authoritarian rule, as well as war, affected artistic trends? And I'm thinking here of Iraq under Saddam Hussein, Syria, past and present. There are so many fantastic Iraqi and Syrian artists that have evolved and done such amazing work under such difficult conditions. I, yeah, I have so much to say about this, uh, Andrew. So, uh, first of all, even under the worst of, uh, you know, the Iraqi repression of artists, you still had the greatest artists creating some of the most beautiful works of the second half of the 20th century. I can name names, but Shakir Hassan al-Sa'id, for example, uh, continued to make art well into the 90s in the, in the height of, uh, you know, Saddam's 1980s repression of artists. And, and artists found a way artists found a way to express themselves. And it wasn't just artists and painters, uh, muralists, poets, singers, filmmakers. Think of Yusuf Shaheen in Iraq. So all these individuals were able to create art at the height of repression by these Arab states. I understand that you do need a degree of freedom, but artists find a way through their creativity to create art that sometimes uh, uh, the, the radar of these, of these authoritarian governments miss out on. And it's only a decade or two, even after these regimes are over, that you appreciate what these artists have put themselves through. And I want to say one more thing here, that unfortunately, the outside world, including myself, we had overlooked the Iraqi art scene over the past 20 years, at least since the late 1990s until the, the late uh, 20-teens, uh, only concentrating on Iraqi artists who are living in the West or the Gulf or in North America. But now, thanks to the uprising of 2019, there has been a plethora of Iraqi artists that we had never heard of. Andrew, I remember tweeting and saying, can you guys show us what's being created in Iraq? I, I think I tweeted this in 2017 or 18. And thanks to the uprising, everybody started posting and sharing images by Iraqi artists who had never even left Iraq in their life. Yeah, that was a wonderful uh, Twitter thread that you provoked by doing that. And then you write amazing pieces. Let me ask you about another part of the region. How has the impact of Palestinian artists evolved over the decades? And what impact has the Palestinian national movement had on Arab art more broadly, past and present? So the Palestinian artistic movement, uh, let's say predated the, uh, the sort of the, the formation of the PLO, but it was with the formation of the PLO in the 1960s and the peak of the PLO in the 70s and 80s, when you had some of the greatest Palestinian artworks. Artists like Suleiman Mansour, like Tamam Al-Akhal and her husband Ismail Shammut, these artists were able to create masterpieces of Palestinian art that was closely tied to the resistance that the PLO was putting forth. And a lot of these artworks depicted freedom fighters, but a lot of them also revolved around national identity. So artworks that would depict the kefiyah, the, the, the Palestinian sort of headdress, artworks that would depict the cactus plant or the olive tree or the orange grove. And so these are, uh, these are uh, symbols of Palestinian identity and artists definitely capitalized on this trend. 
I would say that uh, with the uh, with the sort of the, uh, the the Camp David peace accords, there was less of an emphasis on Palestinian art from the Palestinian uh, state. And unfortunately, and I have to mention this, in 1982, when the Israelis invaded Lebanon and went to Beirut and uh, sort of confiscated uh, the uh, destroyed the PLO headquarters and confiscated so much of the uh, visual uh, library as well as artworks that were there, we lost a lot. And so we don't even know where these artists are, these artworks are. What has been uh, and is the engagement between Arab and Iranian artists? Is there a d- degree of cross-fertilization and influence there, uh, even given difficult political relationships? Yes, Andrew, that's a short answer, but the longer answer is over hundreds, if not thousands of years, there was an exchange of ideas and literature and some poetry between Iran and the, and the Arab world. We have some of the greatest civilizations between us, whether, it's, whether it is in Iraq or Syria or Iraq or Iran and Yemen. So all these countries have a lot to exchange between each other. Uh, but let's say over the 20th century, there was a number of movements. There were a number of movements that emerged in the Arab world and Iran that influenced each other. And I could name you, for example, a movement called the Harufism or Letterism movement that really emerged in the Levant between Iraq and Syria and found its way into the artworks of Zenderudi in Iran. But also you had the Sakakhana movement in Iran that found a lot of adherents and followers of this movement in the, uh, in the uh, Arab world. And these, both these movements, to a large degree, center around the letter. So it is basically devoiding the word uh, or the letter from the word, freeing the letter from the word and giving you the shape of the letter for you to admire at absolutely on its own terms. So this is a very, very important movement that emerged between Iran and Iraq. And I could mention one last thing, which is, in 2016, us, we at Barjil, uh, uh, had held the very first ever, ever, ever modern art exhibition of Arab art in the Iranian capital of Tehran at the very, very prestigious Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art. We took 40 artworks from the Barjil collection, Andrew. And what was really lovely is that the museum there paired them with Iranian masterpieces. Andrew, I wasn't able to go, but I saw the video and I spoke to people. And what was really fascinating is that you don't know which one is an Arab artwork and which is an Iranian artwork because so many of the themes of nationalism, uh, heroism, um, uh, uh, calligraphy, they, there was so much uh, uh, sort of uh, over, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Overlap between both cultures. You have said that exhibitions that you curate will now feature half-women artists. Explain the role and evolution of uh, women painters in the region, and what has been the reaction to your initiative? Oh, it was fascinating. because so First of all, I am not a curator. I am a collector. I, have, I work with curators. My curator, Suhaila Takesh, uh, does all the work. I do all the talking. She does the real work. But what we decided to do a couple of years ago is to mount in our space, because we don't have a say when we loan works to other museums, we can't tell them, you know, you must do this. But in our space, we control that space. And so we decided to show 50-50, a gender-balanced exhibition 
of female and male artists and women, Andrew, across the ages, especially the 20th century, where there's no excuse for people not to showcase uh, works by women artists. Women have always gotten the short end of the stick, to use an American phrase. Uh, and this is not just in the Arab world. This is even in America. The American museums are guilty of showing uh, more, much more works by male as though male artists are better, and it is inexcusable. And so what could we do about this? We could show works by female and works by male artists side by side and let the, let the audience decide. I'll tell you a quick story. When, we, when I announced that I'm planning on doing this, Andrew, a lot of people said, you can't do this. You can't say that you're gonna be showing art in this way. Uh, and it was so interesting because people were messaging me privately and saying this is a big mistake. You are uh, there aren't enough quality works by women. Don't you understand? And this is something I have to clarify: that men had gotten more scholarship throughout the 20th century to study art. So for every one or two or three women that got a scholarship, perhaps 10 or 20 men even got scholarship. So men were definitely uh, what's the word? Um, they had more opportunity than women. That doesn't mean that women did not create beautiful work. And so what happened is, Andrew, we decided to ignore all this noise and we held this exhibition 50-50, male and female. And I sent a couple of the critics and I said, go and look at the exhibition and let me know if the work, uh, the quality of the work had gone down. And no one came back and said to me, actually, uh, the, the quality is worse. Nobody said that. Everyone said, I can't believe it. There's so many beautiful works by women. So the last thing I would say is that we have to expand our understanding of what fine art is because work on ceramic, uh, ceramics, is that how you say it? Work on ceramics, yep. tapestry, uh, linen, uh, these are items that women excelled in. Uh, and and if, you don't, if you don't recognize this as fine art, then you have a problem. Then you'd say, no, no, it has to be a painting or a sculpture where women did not have an opportunity, but women had opportunities with other uh, materials to create art with. This is just uh, anecdotal, but my experience uh, traveling in the Arab world and being around artists, and you know I'm not an artist by training or, or background, um, it seems to me that the Arab world has always been more appreciative of women artists than maybe even here in the West. Have you found that that's true as well? Because it seems wherever I, I, I went in the region and I was in artistic discussions, I was always meeting women artists and seeing their works. And as you mentioned in the West, it's rarely the case. You, you know, actually, I think you're partly right because I think the ignorance of men has allowed women to excel in a field. I mean, art really shows you that when men take away their hand and their control, women can excel naturally. So men were not trying to control this arts world because it was seen as too effeminate or too feminine. So they were not trying to control it so much. And women were allowed to excel to a large degree. And they became the heads of the greatest art institutions in the region. Most of the art museums and galleries are either founded by women or, or run by women. Our minister of culture in the UAE is a woman. Artists are women because men did not feel threatened by this field. Men wanted to go to traditional other jobs like, I don't know, military police, something banking business. And women were sort of allowed to excel when, women, when men had, 
had lifted their control. And so this shows you that in a world where women have equal opportunity, they will excel in all fields and not just in art. And I think that I agree with you, women in the Arab world have had much recognition, but not enough. Agreed, not enough. You're also highlighting Arab Gulf artists. How would you summarize the difference in trends broadly between Gulf artists, those from the Levant, and say those from North Africa? There's a very simple answer to this. Uh, art in the Gulf and fine arts, the, what we recognize as fine arts, arrived about uh, four or five decades after the rest of the Arab world. So modern art really started in, in, the, in the Arab world towards the late 19th century. The first school that was founded was in 1907 in Cairo. And then you had other schools in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Lebanon, elsewhere. And so in the Gulf, you're looking at mid 20th century, 1950s. That, Andrew, shows you that there's four decades difference between art, school, and education in the Arab world and the Gulf. However, Gulf, uh, uh, in the Gulf, art was uh, a craft, were a big part of what art is. So people would create uh, not just um, pendants, for example, dresses, uh, necklaces, all these things that artists in the Gulf would create that we are beginning to recognize now as also kind of fi fine art not painting, but other forms of fine art. And artists in the Gulf went to study in Egypt, in Iraq, in Syria, in the mid 20th century, many of them went to Europe as well. And that I think is the main difference, that there was a, a good four decade uh, um, tardiness in the, in the introduction of uh, education, art education in the Gulf. What about the subject matter and the influences uh, from outside on, on, the, on the artistic works as they evolved? Yes, I think in the Gulf, you will see that we are influenced by three major uh, regions. Uh, other than the Arab world, we are influenced by Iran, by South Asia, which is India mostly, as well as Pakistan, and then by East Africa. So you see a lot of artists in the Gulf reference I uh, reference cultures of Iran, the architecture of Iran, the food and the dresses of India, but also the habits and the traditions of East Africa. This, you see it in a lot of artworks from the Gulf that you don't see in the Levant, in, in Morocco or the Maghreb states, for example. So I think the fact that we are on the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea, um, that, that compels us to also look eastwards. Tell us about the uh, Barjil Art Foundation and its role in promoting Arab art in the UAE, in the region, and internationally. Barjil was founded uh, in 2010, and we have mounted about 32 exhibitions since our founding. At one point in time, we were doing four or five exhibitions a year, so it's very exhausting. Andrew, the collection went up from one or 200 works. We're now over 1,200. The collection uh, concentrates on art from the Arab world, even though I love art from Pakistan, India, Iran, Turkey, and other parts of my region. Uh, but the, the, the main goal and objective of Barjil Art Foundation is to promote art from the Arab world. We collect and promote artists from all ethnicities of the Arab world, including Jewish, Armenian, or Christian, all the denominations of Christianity, uh, Amazigh, Berber, uh, so-called, um, Turkmen, um, African Arab, Persian Arab, all these individuals that make up the colors of the Arab world 
uh, are represented in Barjil, and we always make sure that we showcase their artworks uh, wherever we try, wherever we hold exhibitions, we take works from a diverse ethnicity, from the diverse ethnic backgrounds of the Arab world. You've been working uh, on the book on modern architecture in Sharjah, your hometown. Uh, tell us a little about that and about the arts in the Emirates, uh, past and present. The architecture of the Emirates, you mean? The art and the architecture of the Emirates, oh, okay. sure. Very good. So, so I have been working for the past four years along with uh, four colleagues on a book that documents the mid-20th century architecture of Sharjah, which is my hometown. It's the third largest city in the UAE, population 1.7 million. It's smaller than Dubai, uh, but it's quite a, a fascinating city. It's considered to be the cultural capital of the UAE for a number of reasons. We have most number of museums, etc. And I've always been fascinating and saddened by the fact that we haven't been documenting and archiving our architecture, which we have been losing over the past decades at increasing speed. And so I thought I can't save these buildings, but I can save their memories by producing this book that, is, that will be published in the summer of 2021. Um, the art and architecture scene in the UAE is very vibrant. We have um, one of the most popular biennials in the, in the region, if not in the world, in Sharjah. We have in the UAE a number of major museums. Sharjah Art Museum is the oldest. The Louvre uh, is the youngest, newest. Uh, but we have a number of museums in between. In Dubai, we've got a famous space called the Jamil Art Center, funded by a very generous Saudi family. Um, and uh, we have gorgeous, gorgeous architecture, not just the new architecture of Burj, Al Burj, Al uh, uh, Burj Khalifa in Dubai, but also beautiful modernist architecture going back almost a century now. I want to conclude by asking you about your cultural modulus, the episodes of which are available uh, on your website. I, I've got to say it's one of the most exciting forums I've experienced uh, online. It features leading artists displaying and discussing their work in the context of the events that influence them with a very interesting group of participants moderated and led by you. Uh, tell us a little about the thinking behind it and how you, how you see it evolving. So I started the idea of this cultural majlis when I was in New York in uh, 2009, early 2019. And uh, before this uh, pandemic hit, we were in three cities. We were in Washington, uh, in uh, Boston, and in New York. And there still, there still continues to be a tradition in Washington and New York. And I sort of took over the Boston majlis when the team had, um, uh, had graduated. Um, the idea basically is to host uh, experts in uh, Middle Eastern art and arch architecture and culture, not just Middle East, I also look at uh, South Asia and North Africa, uh, but to give these individuals the chance to speak about their culture uh, and our culture. Um, since the pandemic, I decided to move this online. My priority, Andrew, is to host as many of the older generation as possible, individuals who are now in their 80s, and I've had a number of speakers in their 80s, and what we do, Andrew, is take them on a journey of their lives. I ask them for images of their parents, of their siblings, of the neighborhoods they grew up in, their very first painting, uh, where they studied, their teachers, and friends. And we go on a journey before they, we talk about their art. Uh, and so it's become a very popular um, a platform. We've had 
up to 270 individuals attend talks, uh, especially the one by Her Excellency Noura Al-Kaabi, the UAE Minister of Culture, as well as Samia Halabi, a New York-based artist. We've had over 200 attend her talk. And in general, we get a crowd of about 100, 150 is what I get on average. Uh, we do talks in English and in Arabic. And really, it is no holds bar. People can come and ask any question they want. And it's, it's become a real interesting um, community that we meet twice a week. And you see people say hello to each other. I think there's a little bit of flir flirting going on as well between some individuals. So it becomes a lot of fun. And people started meeting and talking on the side as well. So it's, it's, it's quite an exciting project. And it's kept me intellectually stimulated as well. And I can't recommend it enough. As we wrap up, I only regret that we're only on audio and we could not show the amazing pieces of art you've been talking about. By, I encourage all our listeners to check out your website, sultansaudalkasmi.com and bargeoartfoundation.org, and you can see them there. Sultan, thank you for your time and a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. We will be right back with a few takeaways from our conversation with Sultan Al-Qasimi and some concluding remarks after this short break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Sultan al-Qasimi reminded us of the powerful role that art plays in the culture and life in the region and how it both influences and is influenced by sometimes volatile political, social, and economic trends. Let me just mention three very quick takeaways from our conversation today, and there could be many more. First, Sultan talked about how artistic expression in Iraq's uprising occurs often on the spot and communicated in real time via social media and technology. And this is a shift from previous generations and a sign of the increased speed and fluidity of politics and culture and often volatile social change in the region. Second, Sultan talked about how it has been inexcusable for women artists in, in the Arab world and in the West not to be accorded at least half of the artistic space and how he and the Bargeel Art Foundation are, through their works, putting the lie to the long-standing canard 
of the male dominated art world that there are either not enough women artists or women's work is not good enough. Congratulations to Bargil for making it a criteria for their shows that women will get at least 50% of, of the space in their art gallery. And finally, as Sultan put it, while artists may need a degree of freedom, as he said, artists also find a way through their creativity to create art that sometimes the radar of authoritarian governments miss out on. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. I will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other I'll Monitor podcast on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.